Once you can nail the use cases for like a small representative subset of users, um, then you can end up then scaling very quickly, um, which is why it's very important both to pick your early customers very well and very carefully as much as possible. Because um, you well, ideally you want a small representative subset that you can get to product market fit with and truly understand that's representative of a larger community. Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm Sean McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, and today we're excited to have Nick Schrock on the pod. Nick is the founder of Daxter Labs and previously co-creator of GraphQL while at Facebook. In this episode, we'll cover creating large open source projects, building in the modern data stack ecosystem, and frankly, the decision to transition from CEO that Nick made uh, a year ago now. So welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks, man. Uh, thanks for having me. Honor to be here. Well, I, I just want to start with, you know, kind of joining Facebook in, in 2009, right? Crazy time to to join as well as a, uh, given what was going on in the economy. And so how did you decide to join the team and what was it like being, you know, there in the move fast and break things era? I wasn't in the Valley before that. I had graduated 2003 from University of Michigan. I did a year at Microsoft. I thought I might not want to do software. So I went to uh, London School of Economics for a year and was thinking about going into investment banking or even government service. Anyway, I was a, a young man in search of myself, but I decided to get back into software. And then I went to work at a healthcare startup out of Ann Arbor, where I went to school. And then I moved to Chicago to start a little uh, my own company, but it wasn't funded or anything. And then the financial crisis happened <laughs> in 2008. And so we were building software for infrastructure for hedge funds and prop shops. So mm. it seemed like a bad idea to continue on that endeavor. Um, you know, and then actually a former colleague from Microsoft reached out because he had moved to Facebook and he heard I was on the open market and I was looking at other firms in Chicago, and then I flew out to be interviewed at Facebook, and there was all the, you know, it was just a completely different universe. You know, I was like talking to finance firms in Chicago with all these miserable people who hated their job. And then I went to Silicon Valley and Facebook, and it was a nice office, and there's all this energy, and it was clear, like, much more at the kind of center of things and forward-looking. So the choice is pretty obvious at that point. Um, you know... Facebook for the first five years when I was there from 2009, 2014, it was an extraordinary time to be at the company. And it was an extraordinary experience for everyone involved. Not just the fact that, you know, the company became immensely valuable and there was a great financial outcome. But I think the, you know, if you get a group of face, ex-Facebookers together who were there in that era you all are kind of like desperate to talk about it with each other in the same way that I think like probably like a high school football championship team, they kind of like get excited and talk about the old days and whatnot. Cause it really was an extraordinary place. I think the Facebook engineering culture from that era was amazing. The quantity and quality of work that was done is actually extremely high. Like if you look at kind of, work that was externalized from the company, React, GraphQL, the open compute frameworks, you know, what became PyTorch, all this stuff. It's really extraordinary. 
you know, we kind of had the reputation of a bunch of like kids who didn't know what they were doing and were just shitting out PHP um, <laughs> and a terrible website. Um, but there was real technical depth there and very real ambition and this kind of magical mix of culture um, that was great. You know, one of my kind of one of my goals in building up Dagster Labs culturally is to kind of have extract the best parts of that culture, you know, especially the dev tools oriented stuff and reconstruct that in the company while kind of have being a little more grown up uh, than, than Facebook culture was. So, so yeah, you know, I'm like, a, you know, I'll bleed blue until I die in terms <laughs> of like def defending and honoring the, like, especially the Facebook 2010 to 2013 era. I think it was kind of this like magical moment when you had a company, a bunch of ambitious people had, had both resources, but also highly constrained in a way. Like when I joined, it was 200 engineers. So it wasn't a big engineering organization by today's standards, but any stretch of the imagination. And all those projects I mentioned were effectively built by teams of three or four people. That's crazy. Yeah. You know, it wasn't huge resources. So anyway, I could, I could probably talk for a long time about that, but, uh, but it was amazing, you know, both in terms of technical artifacts and then also just like the, the, it was a strange moment in time when, you know, this is back when everyone loved the Valley. Um, and it wasn't kind of this vibe now where we're, kind of the villains of the story. We were the heroes of the story. And like you had like Kanye and Katy Perry and the president like stopping by the office. It was surreal. I look back in the time very fondly. Um, and obviously it was important, very important in my career too. Yeah, what, what's interesting to me is the open source projects that you mentioned. A lot of them, Google also put stuff out. In some cases before Facebook, in some cases after. But ironically, Facebook's projects seem to have outpaced uh, a, a lot of Google's stuff. I mean, gRPC obviously has has, has done quite well, and, and Kubernetes, right? But like outside of that, you know, I, I don't know. Like TensorFlow compared to PyTorch, right? Like React versus Vue. I mean, it's kind of interesting how that's happened. I don't know if that's your read of it too, or if that's just me. Oh, a hundred percent. We talk about it all the time. We talk about it all the time um, in terms of what, like, why. Um, and I think that, you know, Google is a much more academic and theoretical culture. I think they are less willing to, a little less pragmatic, uh, and a little less customer focused than the Facebook mentality, you know, like internally the infrastructure orgs at Facebook were service organizations that felt like it was their responsible their responsibility to go to market internally. So, mm. you know, when I'm building internal infrastructure of Facebook, I'm not betting on convincing one stakeholder to make a top-down decision to enforce a mandate across the company, right? My mandate as an infrastructure engineer at Facebook was to build a compelling product and messaging around it and then go to market and convince one team at a time to adopt it and then get a groundswell. And at some point you get kind of top down. Um, you know, there is a top down motion as well, but I think that as a result, you kind of had these like, you know, thinly resourced teams that kind of acted like internal startups. Um, and I think that ended uh, that mentality ended up translating externally very well. 
and really focusing on developer experience. That makes sense. The other thing I'll say about it, sorry, just to, to double down on it, is that yeah. you know, Facebook actually looks a lot more like most software programs that people write in terms of like, it's a SaaS app and some mm. like, you can think of it as like a SaaS app and there's tons of concepts and it's messy and dirty. And that was like, and you product iteration was absolutely essential. Um, you were managing complex ontologies. Um, so I think like Facebook actually encounters problems that are more applicable to more companies. Whereas like Google's founding app was a text box and it produced a list backed by highly sophisticated infrastructure, right? So you have like this like completely wide angle lens Facebook, it's just a complete mess and it's an app versus like a very targeted product with a tiny, tiny surface area. So I think like that cultural difference also bleeds through the in everything. That makes a lot of sense. In terms of the, you know, what I imagine is this decentralized team, right? You said small teams making decisions, feeling like owners, moving fast, doing all that stuff. Of course, at some point it changed to move fast with stable infrastructure, right? right. Not as nice of a catchphrase, but, 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 you know, still a catchphrase nonetheless. Um, what does that sort of transition look like? And, and I'm kind of curious even how that affected the teams, right? Did, was Does that mean more centralization or did you still have that decentralized aspect, but you were just doing running more tests and checks or kind of describe what that looked like? It wasn't like, it wasn't like it was like move fast and break things one day and we were behaving one direction. And then like one day Mark was like, just kidding, move fast and stable infrastructure. And immediately everyone started moving the other thing. I think it was much more of, one, move fast and break things is kind of a misunderstood term, and we can get into that. But then it was also move fast and stable infrastructure was, yes, it was about where the company needed to go, but it was also a description of where the company had gotten already, um, meaning that it had become much less fun to ship bugs. <laughs> and <laughs> it was obvious that we were now a core part of Internet infrastructure, and you couldn't wantingly like break stuff. Um, in terms of that stuff. Now, part of moving fast break things is also having technical bravery, I'll call, and being willing to like rewrite the stack, being willing to really go in and change things and not having no sacred cows. So that part was very important to preserve, in my view. Um, but, you know, like I pushed a bug that got on the front page in the New York Times. You know, I didn't... I didn't <laughs> That's crazy. I did not need... A, a motto to understand that behavior needed to change um, as well. Like Facebook had always been super serious about infrastructure um, and infrastructure stability. Yeah. Like it was more of a evolving metamorphosis as opposed to like a one day we're going to do that. Was that evolution the same on the desktop to mobile transition? Because that's what everyone talks about, right? The stock price was down a ton, right? It was not sure what was going to pull it off. Was that was there a similar evolution? Like from the outside, it looks like, hey, Facebook kind of figured it out and, and pulled the rabbit out of the hat. But I'm wondering, were you thinking about for a while? No, that one was much more of a top-down mandate. Um, so that one was like a technical strategy had been kind of pushed and consolidated around. And I think that was a case where maybe even the de decentralized approach failed Facebook because everyone wanted to build mobile apps using web technologies because this made sense. It's like what you knew already and it like served the company so well. 
And then once the output started getting, like once that didn't work, kind of had to blow the whole thing up and be like, just kidding, we need native mobile apps. So that was much more of a company mandate. And then Mark, you know, very quickly incorporated that into process. It was very simple. You know, in order to ship stuff, you had to get ship anything important, had to get through a product review process that involved Mark. And he just said, if you don't come with, if you don't come to the review with a native mobile app, I'm not even gonna have the meeting. So <laughs> I mean, I guess that works. <laughs> so that was as they say that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Well, let's let's move into the GraphQL story, right? Um, I, I'm just curious, sort of, what was going through your head and and and, and your colleagues' head? Um, like, I, what was the problem, or or what existed at the time that you're like, you know what, this is we, we need to go and and solve this this thing out there, and you know, it ended up being GraphQL. But walk us through the thought process of like, hey, I need to build something on my own here versus like pulling something off the shelf or, or jerry-rigging scripts on top of you know, something else. So working up to GraphQL, I'd worked on this team called Product Infrastructure. And my kind of life for a couple of years, year and a half, was effectively building our internal, in building and maturing our internal business object model. Um, and, that, and, and its interaction with the data fetching stack. So that was the context. And then... You know, we had spun up that iOS team, the, the top-down mandate that I mentioned, and we had brought in a bunch of like ex-Apple folks and iOS experts, and they were building the app on top of our public-facing platform, as well as a couple custom REST endpoints. And some of the more old-school Facebookers were on the team and realized very quickly that this strategy was not going to work. And one of them, a good friend of mine, Bo Hartshorn, just started, he started dropping by my desk every day. And he's like, Nick, this is like, like, we're totally screwed. Like, we need to build this app. And like, we don't have an API that is reliable. You have to work on this. And I'm like, I was working on something else. I'm like, okay, okay. Um, and then he like kept, he kind of kept on doing that like every day. Um, and then, at, you know, maybe the fifth day I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to look at this. You know, the the structure of our internal data fetching system is called Ant. It served the company very well. And I started looking at this and, you know, someone was building a custom REST, uh, you know, a REST API, REST-based API for our news feed. Um, I thought there was going to be a ton of problems with that. And there's some other work going on in the company. It was really a moment of inspiration where I was just like, why don't we just take the internal system that we've built and build an API that's like very directly aligned with that, you know, cause the, the issue was that, you know, the, the primary interface that the iOS team was using was FQL, which is a SQL variant for, for the Facebook object model. And so what you end up doing is that the backend representation of it, and I had built this system that made FQL a very thin wrapper on top of our business object layer, and people were migrating stuff, migrating the system to that. So you had, we were fetching this object model, then like massaging it into a tabular format, sending it down to the phone, and then reassembling that into another hierarchical object model, which then would be passed to views to be rendered. And I kind of had the insight, it was like, why don't we just make it an object graph all the way from back to front, right? So you, you structure the query like a graph, 
right? Get hierarchical data that slots directly into the UIs that you're building. Um, that in a very thin layer gets mapped to the existing business object model that's already working very nicely for the system. And then it just ends up kind of being this elegant thing. So um, it's kind of a moment of inspiration that was based on the fact that the business object model and middle tier query language we had written, end-to-end query, were working well. And I kind of like, it was one of those things where I kind of like was like, oh, I can see how this can work and do so very quickly. And I built the prototype in a matter of days. I mean, it wasn't like, it was just like enough to prove it out um, and get momentum around it. So, you know, it was really the type of thing where, you know, someone was building a REST endpoint for this and there are some kind of peer systems that could have been equivalent, but not really. So it was a fairly novel thing. And frankly, I didn't really consider alternative approaches that seriously. How did you actually, I mean, how'd you get the space to do it, right? You, you had a, your manager, your, like you said, everyone was an owner in the business, right? So you had some sort of goal that you guys were all shooting towards, right? And all of a sudden now Nick's going off and doing this, you know, this GraphQL thing, right? Like, I mean, maybe that was part of the goal, right? But I, I, how'd you carve that time out and, and, and space out to go do it? And how was the team like, yeah, sure, Nick, go do this thing? Individual engineers had a bunch of autonomy at Facebook. And then I had a very supportive manager who, in fact, also wanted to get me off the project I was currently working on. So it was kind of like ideal from his perspective, I think. Okay. But, you know, if I if I went to a, a manager my, my manager in a one-on-one -on -one, and I said like, Hey, I think I need to work on this. This is obviously the most important thing. This contributes to the most important goal at the company. You know, I'm uniquely suited to solve it. I need to abandon all my other responsibilities and go work on this. Like 99% of the managers of the company that, well, 90% 90, 90 of the managers of the company at that standpoint would be like, of course, that's the right thing to do. Go, go do it. We'll figure out what to do. So there is a high degree of trust, autonomy and flexibility to work. Um, cause that didn't just happen with me. It happened with a couple other people. Like the three co-creators, me, Lee and Dan were scattered around the company, you know? Um, and we kind of, we all knew each other and knew each other's work, but kind of through my prototype, we got merged, uh, merged into it. And we just like decided autonomously, Hey, we got to go off and do this. We're going to go to a different part of the building and set up a, like a war room and go nuts and like every everyone involved was super supportive yeah so uh, i'm curious now how do you roll this out internally right like you know all of a sudden now developers within facebook have to use it uh they have to learn something new they have to read documentation on how to do it right it, it, it disrupt their workflow i mean i think these are relevant to to how you built dagster and how you got that into the world too so i'm kind of curious like how, how did you go about being like all right now facebook engineers go and use this so you, you start out with one customer. Um, that's how you start. The mission was extremely clear, which was make newsfeed work on the phone using native client technologies. Okay, got it. And so you have to access the data. So we literally, I was sitting next to the iOS engineer and he would say, I need this data. And I'd, be, I'd go and type, push it and be like, you have this data, what's next? Um, so it was highly, super iterative, extremely fast, building on an extremely defined objective that had clear value propositions that everyone could get their heads around. So one, you demonstrate success. And then the other thing that's unique about 
Facebook and the, the newest feed is a, is a unique attack vector to spread infrastructure at the company because everyone has to interact with feed. Like if you're a product team, you want to get distribution, like you have to get a story in the news feed and you have to interact with the underlying infrastructure. So kind of once you, once you're like backing newsfeed, you kind of like naturally had the spread. And then once we launched newsfeed, there's a bunch of non-native user experiences. And those teams felt immense pressure to get native experiences in the app going. And then their solution for data fetching was always GraphQL. We had the, the problem, one of them good problems, there was too much pressure for adoption. And actually probably the technology spread too quickly at first, and we weren't able to control it and like, and, and whatnot. So GraphQL is kind of the easiest sell in my entire career in terms of, it was not pushing on a string. You were like, like it, like it had a momentum all its own, both in terms of actual true underlying core value proposition, as well as top-down pressure from the CEO. Got it. Cause you would just walk around and be like, why isn't this native yet? You know, <laughs> and like everyone feel like we call the eye of the eye of Sauron. Yeah, it was upon you. <laughs> right. So it was kind of a unique moment in time where I think it had a unique value proposition. And there's also intense incentives inside the company, both explicit and implicit to drive adoption. That makes sense. So I, one thing before you even start, Daxter, I'm just curious about is why didn't you start a GraphQL company, right? Like you, you had this knowledge. I'm sure a bunch of VCs and a bunch of customers even, you know, it was open source. I'm sure a bunch of users were like, oh, man this is great. We could do all sorts of stuff with this, right? Like why not just go build a company around that since you were you know, one of the few people in the world that knew how to really use it? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, frankly, didn't even consider it that seriously. I think it was part of like the, the other two GraphQL founders were, we were on kind of different head spaces in terms of where we were in life, <laughs> so to speak. Like, so I don't think we could have gotten momentum and alignment to start a company together all at the same time would have been weird doing it without the other two. I think also I was just attracted to doing something new. And so, yeah. And then also GraphQL externally at from Facebook was used externally. It's very different ways used at Facebook, right? Like I think that externally it's often used as kind of this federation layer to consolidate microservices architectures. Right. And I hate microservices architectures with like the a burning passion. So in fact, if I would have started a GraphQL company, its mission in life probably in reality would have been to try to kill microservices <laughs> as like an acceptable architecture for 90% of the people who use it. Because I think that's true. Is Daxter a mono repo, by the way? Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> from, my, from my cold dead hands. Um, the, I mean, we actually have multiple repos because like one of the repos is open source and yeah. one of it is our internal code base. Um, so there's like constraints and sometimes it's not right solution. But by by default, I think things should be as mono as possible. Um, so, yeah, I don't like have a super coherent answer. I also guess got really attracted to the data infrastructure space. I thought there was like a massive opportunity um, there and... You know, it just felt like a huge developer experience dumpster fire. Let's dive right into that. Like, why'd you decide to start Daxter then? Like, what, what, what was going through your head? So I left Facebook in 2017. And I was looking what to do next. And um, 
you know, I started talking to companies about what their business, you know, I, this is another reason why I didn't do a GraphQL company is that I just started talking to companies in a more open-minded way. I'm like, what, what are the biggest things that are preventing you from being successful? Um, and, you know, web apps and noble apps did not come up at all. What came up all the time was data ML infrastructure. Um, and this was like across all company sizes, all domains, you know, from legacy companies to startups was data pipelines and ML pipelines and all the issues around that are like, just like a complete nightmare and utterly essential to the business. So that got me very interested. You know, when I get excited about projects, I've done some reflection on this. It's kind of, kind of like four properties that get me, get me going. One is like this immediacy, like there are engineers in pain because of abstractions and workflows that don't make sense. And in that actually like makes me fundamentally very angry and frustrated when I see it, because I'm like, these engineers are like, they're like not getting home to their families because they're using like substandard tools. And there's nothing that is preventing that from being fixed other than someone coming up with a better idea in software. It's not like a fundamentally underlying constraint. So engineers in pain deeply motivate me. I'm kind of attracted to a developer experience dumpster fires like a moth to a flame. Then I have some sort of idea for how to solve that engineering pain. So, and something that I believe is like novel and cool and interesting. Um, then another thing I really like is uh, technologies that are a strategic point of leverage at a company. So like GraphQL fits the bill, right? Because it's just one choke point by which mm -hmm. all the kind of client side code talks to all the server side code. Um, and then at that level, you can like, have one unified software schema to describe all your systems. That's a very interesting place to apply policy and both technical and policy leverage. So I, I, I like technologies that kind of in a strategic way intersect with both the org chart and technical boundaries. Um, and the, the, that's why the orchestration layer like made a ton of sense for me to, in my head to attack. And then lastly, like a problem that matters and data ML infrastructure really fits the bill. So one, it's super wide horizontal market. And I think it's really motivating and exciting if you can build technology that's used by hundreds of thousands or millions of developers inherently. But then with ML, like with data ML infrastructure, also like the, the state of the world was so dire and still is in some ways. And these data pipelines and the data assets that get produced by them are so essential to society, right? Like we have dashboards, we are driving decision-making, yep. right? There's the reproducibility crisis in academia, which a lot of it is just data problems. Um, you have these systems are the basis of also automated decision-making, right? Who gets loans and not? How do we price healthcare products? Like all sorts of stuff. And the fact that it was built sort of on what I consider shoddy engineering practices and no one, everyone felt, everyone still feels it's kind of like, the world, it's too chaotic and out of control and you can't trust anything. And it's just all very, it's all very challenging. So kind of between all those things, um, you know, bad DevX, kind of a novel idea in my mind, a strategic point of leverage in an org and then like in a problem that matters externally, kind of all that came together and like I was like very motivated. So it really stuck out at me. 
what did you use? Like what, what tactics did you pick up from your time, you know, kind of getting GraphQL out into the world and, and engaging with others to bring to Daxter and kind of help spur along the open source journey there? So, you know, tactically, I would say... Was it very different? It is very different because we didn't spend a ton of energy and time evangelizing GraphQL because we didn't form a startup around it, right? We produced like a technical artifact, like initial go-to-market kind of material. We went and gave conference talks, but we weren't like... We like shipped the spec, did a few talks and then kind of moved on with our lives and monitored it fairly passively. And like other startups kind of cropped up around it and got momentum around it. What I learned from GraphQL, one is that, you know, I didn't think, Gra- I didn't think, I didn't think GraphQL was gonna work um, in terms of being broadly applicable. Cause like all we did was release a document and we were, like in order for it to be successful, like an entire ecosystem needed to build around it in order to build implementations of every programming language and also a bunch of client software that builds on top of the spec. I thought that was crazy, but it ended up working, right? So the I think that what it really taught me the importance of is like extremely clear product marketing and technical communication. Um, so we had this fairly clear vision, pretty consistent about the way we articulated it. And then to see the words that we said get replicated by companies and meetups and all this stuff in kind of a shockingly consistent fashion was like a big learning for us. So produce very clear, high quality technical content with a clear mission. Um, And then if you kind of paint a vision for people, they're actually willing to do a ton of work to see it fulfilled, um, which I think is like very inspiring. Um, You know, I was like, you know, I, I take developer communities very seriously and always try to bias in towards of empowering them rather than dumbing stuff down. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. And I think, uh, frankly, developers can see through it too if you if you don't embody that. So uh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny, but developers often scoff at marketing and they don't like bad marketing, but good marketing, they really like good marketing, but they don't think of it as marketing in their mind. They just think of it as messaging that makes sense. Um, right. Yeah. It's funny marketing among developer communities is kind of a dirty word. Um, but what I think they do, uh, what they do gravitate towards is compelling communication. I mean, I, I listen to the, you know, so many AWS heroes or serverless heroes and Docker captains and all that sort of stuff. And it's just like, uh, that is essentially the marketing org. It just so happens that they're writing interesting and, and, and talking about interesting stuff. So, right. um, but, you, you know, a lot of things that, that listeners, frankly, love is those do things that don't scale moments. And so what's one that you really remember from from Daxter so far? I mean, it's kind of similar to the GraphQL story in terms of, you know, we spent a bunch of time and basically like a company-wide effort to get a single user to production, meaning production at scale, you know, because we didn't develop this thing internally a big company. So we had to like find our first real user and then, you know, really deeply partner with them to make it work at scale. And that meant doing things that don't scale, like, you know, getting them like to share their code with us read only and like building tooling basically to allow us to remotely debug stuff and like, um, you know, and really, you know, and they were in a completely different time zone. So it was, it was a nightmare, 
Um, it was a total nightmare. You know, we just you do what you have to do. So yeah, I'm just like a you know the nature of software is that there's zero to one, like, and then there's kind of maybe one to two or three, and then you can go to infinity at that point. Like it's just like the the nature the nature of the beast. Like once you once you can nail the use cases for like a small representative subset of users, um, then you can end up then scaling very quickly, um, which is why it's very important both to pick your early customers very well and very carefully as much as possible. Because um, you well, ideally you want a small representative subset that you can get to product market fit with and truly understand that's representative of a larger community. Yeah. Recently, Daxter just launched a bunch of features and I'm really interested to dig in here because one, it's like truly the the platform vision is is coming to bear. But but also, frankly, there's uh, there's a lot of companies in each of those areas that that you guys ship something like data quality and analytics and ETL and, and, and those sort of things. And so um, I guess the first question that I would have for you is just one, how has the kind of go to market motion uh, changed now that you've shifted from, hey, we're selling the orchestration layer to, hey, orchestration, but also all these components that you can also add in and combine, make your journey, your data journey a lot easier? Yeah, it's a good, I mean, the, I think the honest answer is it's still evolving. It's an interesting, because first of all, we don't think this is like an unnatural expansion into like a bunch of, like we are building these capabilities into the orchestrator, orchestration layer, but we don't really view ourselves as like a competitor to like a, a super heavyweight verticalized tool. It's a full SaaS solution. There's a bunch of features that we're not going to build, you know? Um, so, you know, when we're talking about data quality, for example, like the core job of a data engineer is to build high quality data assets and keep them up to date. Right. So the notion of quality is like directly in their job title and should be part of their core tool and their core, core workflow. Um, you know, you can have like supplemental tools that kind of do heavier weight things or cater to different constituencies. So, you know, we don't think about it competing against a, say, data quality tool that's exclusively used by a downstream team. We are like building data quality into the data engineering life cycle um, and doing so in a way where all that, the data quality is like built into the engineering process and then the information is also accessible via APIs that could be like embedded in those other tools. So we really think of ourselves as like this data engineering platform where engineers in highly leveraged ways can embed these capabilities into their platform and then spawn an ecosystem around it. Um, you know, cause it'd be, it'd be, it'd be kind of silly of us to, um, directly compete on all fronts with all the adjacencies. Mm -hmm. So we're very engineering focused. We think that engineers want to solve stuff in ways that make sense to them and they can do so in highly leveraged ways. In terms of the persona that you guys focus on, I mean, traditionally it's been, and, and, and I'm sure still is data engineers. Do you see that broadening out to the you know, kind of the average developer to be able to use this tooling or is it still too focused on you need to understand the data model you need to understand all these things so it'll kind of always still rest with like a so-called data engineer 
So I think it's extremely important to separate a data engineer from the art and craft of data engineering. So there are people with the title of data engineer, but there are also people with titles like data platform engineer, data scientist, um, ML engineer. They all do data engineering as a critical subcomponent of their job. Now, what you're talking about, which I think is a very exciting kind of future, is where kind of individual product teams view data engineering as core part of their job because they're like, well, we're building a product, but we also need analytics on it. We also have ML that needs to feed directly back into the product. Mm. There's in-product experiences. You need kind of a think of it as a holistic experience. So I think it's inevitable that sort of mainline engineering teams will have to become proficient to some degree with, with data engineering. And so having a tool set which can be used and makes sense to mainline software engineers, I think like opens up a very exciting future where you can kind of organizationally meld these things a little more rather than having like this extremely divided world between product teams and data teams. I want to move into the decision that you made a year ago, which was you transitioned from CEO to, to CTO. And, uh, you know, I, I want to ask how, how you made that decision. But, but one of the contexts I want to keep in the back of your mind is, you know, a lot of, I think, a lot of founders and a lot of leaders right now are, are thinking about this and, and thinking through it, especially with the fact that, you know, a lot of things changed in the past three years, especially with, uh, with the pandemic starting and then, uh, uh, you know, funding going crazy and stuff like that. So with that as the context, like you kind of, how'd you get around to making the decision of like, Hey, I'm going to make this transition. It's fairly unique to my context and the particularities of what was going on both professionally and personally. But, you know, kind of the story is that in February, 2022, I was able to convince Pete, who's now the CEO to come on as a head of engineering. Now his job was always going to be kind of, head of engineering plus plus because he had been a CEO. He had scaled the company to 5 million of RR and you know, sold to Twitter. So he had kind of done this before. So it was really an honor to be able to get him on the team. And then it was very obvious to me fairly quickly that he was better operationally than I am. Meaning like he would just ask me questions about the marketing and the sales process. I was like, wow, I probably should have asked that question about six months ago. Um, so I increasingly went to him for advice and counsel on those issues. Um, and then I think also by having him on the team and having like a little more of a operationally, you know, mature thinking and a new dose of energy too, I realized also that I'd been like personally overextended. I was solo CEO founder, even though the funding environment was awesome during the pandemic, the day-to-day -day life of a founder. Right in a distributed environment is like, like very challenging um, in terms of like your job is to like keep the team motivated and together and to like inject energy into every uh, meeting and doing that through this camera on Zoom yeah, right. is like really, really taxing. I was a solo founder. We had moved away from the Bay Area. Um, I was isolated. We had, you know, I had, I have a two and a four year old now. So I was a new father. <clears throat> um, we, we had like house issues. We had, to, so anyway, it was just like, I was clearly overstretched. Um, and I also, and then because of that, I actually wasn't able to focus on the things that I'm truly good at, 
And so by the time we had made the decision to move to New York, when I arrived there, it just it, it was kind of obvious to me both from the standpoint of me personally and for the company is the right move. Um, and the fact that we had Pete, who I'd like known for 10 years, we have like extremely aligned values. Um, you know, he had assumed more and more responsibility organically anyway, that it ended up being like an extremely smooth transition. I guess like, you know, when other founders um, are super jealous when I, you know, they, they're like, this is great. You're able to like CEO is like not a fun, there's like a lot of glory, quote unquote, involved with it, but like, it is not a fun job um, by and large. And so, you know, founders come and ask me, they're like, how can I do this? I'm like, well, can you hire a head engineering that used to be a CEO right. <laughs> that you've known for 10 years that you agree with everything on who has pre-existing credibility with like important people on the team? Well, I had a very unique situation uh, in that. So I owe a lot to Pete. Um, and the transition's been super smooth. Like the the company, the trajectory of the company has accelerated. We have no attrition related to the leadership transition at all. I think every stakeholder is happier, including myself. So, you know, it's been extremely smooth and we have a great partnership. Was it at all weird though to go from, you know, the one-on-ones and, and the the managerial meetings that you were doing, and then all of a sudden, you know, now they're wiped off the calendar. That is definitely shocking. Um, there's a temporary moment, especially because you're distributed, of like being like kind of disconnected very quickly um, in a jarring way. And there's also like a certain sense of relief too, because you know you kind of like relax a little bit because again, as CEO. In my view, your job is to like, like not be Pollyannish, but be optimistic, inject energy into every meeting. Yeah. And like, that is just, you know, exhausting. So I was glad to be able to take a breath. And it was then fun to be able to get back into product and start coding. And I was able to kind of knock out a couple projects early and that felt good. So, so yeah, super jarring transition though, for sure. Yeah, well, c congratulations on, on on pulling it off well, and and, and seems like uh, you know you, you did a good job on the recruiting front to be able to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of founders, uh, are, you know, they're listening. They've started an open source, uh, you know, an open source company, and they have a product that's out there. You know, they've got some some customers, right? They're 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 scaling the open source. I guess like, what advice do you have for them? Because it's almost like two businesses that you're you're kind of focused on in terms of like scaling the product and the business uh, at the same time? And kind of, do you view it as like a pendulum swifting? Like maybe one time you have to focus more on one side versus the other, or just, you know, generally, I guess, what, what advice do you have to share? So I think it's very useful for sure as a founder to have control over in a lot of influence over both the open source project and the commercial aspect of it. If I were to give myself advice uh, five years ago, I would have asked a few questions. I've been like, can you do the initial phase inside of a company? Um, if you can do that in a way that doesn't compromise the future startup, that is ideal. You can get technical product market fit without having to raise a seed round. You can like de you have a captive customer where you can like make changes in a much more low cost way. Um, you can kind of develop the intellectual capital with a lot more resources and a lot more control in a way. 
So I would think about that. I would, in terms of how to separate open source and commercial, I would point the founder to Vercel mm, true. as someone who's done this extremely well, meaning like they have an XJS, they have control of it, but they have a completely separate commercial solution. So there's very, there's very clear dividing lines, I think with them between what's commercial and what's open source. Um, and they, you know, they, Vercel has the problems that any company has where like people get pissed off at the pricing model. So it's not like it doesn't, it doesn't solve right. all those issues, but I think they have a very, like they have like the clearest delineation in terms of branding delineation and what's going on there. And I think it like provides them a lot of flexibility. Speaking of which, their 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 product marketing and messaging is something I've been quite impressed with. Like the whole framework defined infrastructure, yes, just rolls off your tongue once you do it, and 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 it just like each word gives you an understanding of what they're doing. Which as as somebody else, normally I'd be like, oh, front end frameworks, like what the heck? And then they say framework defined infrastructure. I'm like, oh, it all clicks in my head. You know? No, actually, you know, like the moment that came out, you know, who messaged me that article was Pete. He's like, look how awesome this is. Uh, so we're, we're all aboard the framework to find infrastructure a yeah. train yeah, on that front. And because, because of the React lineage, like Pete was one of the co-creators of React. Like we know tons of people in uh, Vercel, um, all, all the way up and down the chain. Um, but yeah, we, we really come to Vercel in terms of like, as you say, product marketing, as well as kind of the way they've like manage their open source versus commercial brand. It's been pretty effective. Yeah. Well, Nick, thanks so much for, for taking the time. Um, I guess, you know, what would you like to highlight for the audience that's coming up for Dagster Labs? As you mentioned, you know, we launched a bunch of new features um, in October. We're really happy with the content, and the software that we produce. So highly encourage the audience to go on our website and check out those talks. Um, you know, we're, as you mentioned, we're going to continue to double down on this. You know, we're more than an orchestrator and we want to redefine orchestration the same way that like Apple redefined the iPhone, meaning that they released an iPhone and yes, it had the core phone capabilities, but it also had all these other capabilities that no other phones had and any other phone that didn't have those capabilities was no longer considered a real phone. Right. Like it was so good that they rebranded the original mobile phones as dumb phones. You know, our future is definitely still investing in asset oriented orchestration. We still think that's really important. But we also think that engineers want all these capabilities, quality, data cataloging, ETL, you know, all this stuff. They want to do it in a way where they don't have to bring in like five super heavyweight. SaaS solutions in order to do it. They want a programmable kind of surface area on which they can compose capabilities and bring them under one one roof, um, and then and then use that as a platform to integrate those heavier weight solutions if they're necessary. So we will continue to be investing in this kind of this vision of Daxter being the control plane for your data platform in the same way that your the cloud data warehouse is the data plane. Yeah. And that's what we're looking, really looking forward to. Well, love that vision. I, I hope uh, you guys continue to succeed in that. Mm -hmm.